Say holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, man. Doesn't get any better than that. That was great. We uh, got a lot of stuff to cover this morning. Get pumped. Are you excited? That's how good. I was, I was hoping I wasn't going to have to ask you twice. That's wonderful. So we got the chalkboard. I went ahead and nixed the video, so we got more time. You just, you just get so excited. Uh, grab a Bible. We're going to be in Isaiah 6. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one that looks like this in the seats in front of you. If you want to use an electronic one and can handle the temptations therein, that's fine. But we want to be reading God's Word. Because if we're gathering and we're not reading God's Word, then we're wasting our time. If we're not preaching the Word, singing the Word, showing the Word, praying the Word, when we gather, why are we gathering, right? That's our standard. That's what we're doing. The Word of the Lord. So that's what we're doing. Is that okay? Good. That's what we're going to do. We've been reading through the whole Bible, uh, as we say every week. And so if you're just, if you're new here, if you're tuning in, that's what we've been doing. And so if you haven't been following along or you've kind of been hit and miss, just to give you kind of a quick crash course, we are in the Kings. How many of you have memorized all the Kings of North and South? Of course not, right? Gosh, they're forgettable. It's a nightmare, right? Every day you're just like, oh, who's that J, J who? J who? I don't know. Like, it's just so forgettable. And basically what we do know is all the kings of the north are terrible, right? Those guys are the worst. And then sometimes the kings of the south, they're okay, right? So we got the southern king of Judah, northern king of Israel. And if you take back a little bit, the kingdom split because we had Solomon. And Solomon was great, right? Sort of, but then he completely tanked. And because of the way he tanked and because he went away from the covenant of the Lord, more on covenants in a minute, then we see this downfall. And then, spoiler alert, it's going to keep getting worse just keeps getting worse, right? And before that, we had David, and he was a good guy, right? Things were going great with him. He had this hiccup here and there, but ultimately, he was known as one who chased after the Lord, who sought the Lord. He did right in the eyes of the Lord. And then the whole reason they're here is because God made a covenant with Abraham. He put his people together in Israel. He gave a covenant with them in Mount Sinai when he rescued them from Egypt. More on that in a minute. And he brought them all together to say, you shall be my people. I will give you this land. If you obey me, if you love Love me. If you worship me, it's all going to be good. But if you don't, rah, it's all going to tank. We've talked every week about Tov and Ra, good and evil. God does good through our evil. That is consistent with what's happened in scripture. That's what happened in my life. That's what's happening in your life. Even if you don't see it, God is working all things for his glory and our good, right? And that's what we want to be seeing. So we are now at a point to where for several weeks now, we're going to be talking about prophets, right? Uh, if you remember several, several, several weeks ago, we talked about the first time the word prophecy was used in scripture. And we talked about how Moses wishes that we should all prophesy. And then Paul later on in first Corinthians, he wishes that we should all prophesy. And we talked about what that means, right? Do you guys remember last week, uh, the phrase that I used for prophets? Prophets are, it's okay if you don't, I said it quickly. Covenant watchdogs, Arr, show me your watchdog face. Arr, I like that. Good job. That, I like, that was good. So they're covenant watchdogs. Arr, arr. They're just like, man, hold on. You're so, they're watching out there. What, what does a watchdog do? What does a guard dog do, right? Those watching after your house. If someone's breaking in, they're going to bite you. All right? So that's what they're doing. They're watching out. They're saying, hey, guys, you, you were supposed to. God said, 
in general, to save a five-minute video that we'll post on Facebook, you can watch later. Prophets are covenant watchdogs who have special connections with the Lord. They go and they sit with him, they listen to him, and then they go and speak the words of the Lord. And if you go back and listen to our sermon on prophecy, you'll find when Moses wishes we should all prophesy, when Paul wishes we should all prophesy, he's saying, I would hope that the Ruach, the Spirit of the Lord, would so fill people that when they speak, they speak the words of God. That is what they speak. And that's what a prophet does. And so here we are in the prophets. Covenant watchdogs. What's the covenant? What are we doing with covenant? We got to cover that real quick. We're going to do a crash course on the covenants in the Bible real quick. We're going to look at them. You can see the verses on screen. I'm going to read them. Some of these verses we're going to come back to because we got to talk about the word offspring, but we'll get there. In Genesis 12, right after the Tower of Babel, we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Nope. God messes that up. He says, no, you're not going to make a name for yourself. I make a name. I am the one who's the Lord, my name, right? So Genesis 12, he calls out Abraham. He says, I will make a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A lot of us in here, most of us, I'm fair to say almost all of us, aren't directly in some way connected to this Abrahamic covenant because we're not Israelis, we're not Jews, we're not Hebrews, right? That's not us. But then when this last line, it says, man, all the families of there shall be blessed through you. That's me. I'm all the families. You're all the families. Hey, good, great. That's going to be all of us, right? So later on, God calls uh, them out and they have some problems. They get in uh, Exodus and Egypt and then God calls them out to Mount Sinai. He saves them from Pharaoh. You've heard of the 10 plagues and all this. God pulls them out and on Mount Sinai, we have Exodus 19. He has the Mosaic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant's coming, Exodus 19. You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of you remember we talked about that? We had a whole sermon on that. Priests, right? Those who have a connection. They're a liaison between deity and everyone else. All y'all are priests. We don't have time to talk about priest, 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 prophet, 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 deacon, deacon, deacon. But ask me about it sometime because it blows my mind how God uses these words in layers. And we think we understand structures and powers, but God's scripture just wrecks it. We don't know nothing. It's God who has authority, not us. Moving on. Sorry, we don't have time for that. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's great. They're going to be everything if you follow me, if you obey my covenant. Then 2 Samuel, read this a couple weeks ago with uh, Solomon. 2 Samuel, we have the Davidic covenant, starting in verse 12, and then we'll skip to verse 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down, God talking to David through Nathan, when you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come, they shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made for sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. How long is forever? It's forever, right? Yeah. How long is, what's the ground? What holds the ground? Right. It's forever. Your kingdom shall last forever. So we have this covenant, Abraham, Moses, David, and God says, if you obey me, if you don't obey me, but then to David, he says, hold on, there is going to be offspring for you. I'm going to establish their covenant, their kingdom forever. More on that in a letter. Hold that in. So how do these kings do? As we've been reading, just good or bad, how are the kings going? Yeah, they stink. Things are going terrible right now, right? They didn't follow the Lord. They failed, but the kingdom's going to be established forever. So in walks the prophets, the covenant watchdog. 
right? They're coming in and they're going to be like, thus says the Lord, I heard from God and you just got, you're messing this whole thing up. Come on. It's the God gave it to us and you just made a mess of this place. Come on. Like that's what they're coming to do. And so we're going to start reading those. We've got like 15 of them. We've already read a couple. If you've been following along, we read Obadiah, read Jonah. Uh, a couple years ago, we preached through Jonah. You can go back and reference that if you want. We're going to talk about Isaiah. Say Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah, uh, southern kingdom. Uh, A lot of people believe he was a priest uh, because he was in the temple when God appeared here in a minute. Uh, That's fine. Isaiah is huge. Say huge. Uh, We're going places. I'm going to make you say a lot today. (laughs) So I guess that's how I'm feeling. Uh, There are so many. How many chapters in Isaiah? Sixty. Six. Good job, Bible people. Points for the Bible nerds in the room. 66. Why do you memorize that stuff? You know what I mean? When does that help you? Are you ever going to a trivia night at the club? And they're like, ooh, how many? No, never. Come on. Why do we memorize stuff? Anyway, so there's 66. Uh, It's unique from the other prophets because it is the most quoted prophet by Jesus, by the disciples, by the apostles. Tons of times quoted in the New Testament. You want to know who's quoted the most? Psalms and Isaiah. That's what's quoted the most in the New Testament. So it's a big deal here. Turn to Mark 1. This is important. When we start Mark 1, it'll be on the screen. Some of you are like, I'm not turning there. You're going to read too fast anyway. That's fine. Uh, Dana used to go on me. You guys remember Dana? She'd sit over there. She would get on me. She'd say, you tell us to turn somewhere, and then you just start reading. I ain't got time to turn there. I'm sorry. I'll give you time for you, you finger flippers. That's enough. Mark 1, Bible drillers. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Mark starts his gospel, assuming you know Isaiah. Do you have all of Isaiah memorized? Then why are you reading Mark? How do you understand Mark? Come on, Mark's telling you right now. Hey, you remember this Isaiah thing that was so important? Here's the gospel of Jesus. We're just going to add on to it. Come on. And we miss that. We miss, wait, wait. Isaiah, Isaiah must be a lot about Jesus, right? If Mark's saying this is the gospel of Jesus as Isaiah talked about, right? Right? Luke 4, Jesus walks into the synagogue, which is like a uh, a satellite temple, right? Jesus walks into the synagogue, and he pulls open, and he reads Isaiah 66. We're not going to read it right now. Or, sorry, Isaiah 61. He reads from Isaiah 61, and then Luke 4, 21, he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, that's about me. I'm the fulfillment of all this Isaiah stuff you're looking at it, bub. And that's a really offensive thing. It's part of the reason he got killed. They're like, whoa, gee, you're not, whoa, whoa. Like all the little micro covenant watchdogs, the little uh, Israelite leaders, they're like, hold on. You can't say that in here. You don't say that. You don't claim to be the Messiah. You don't say you're fulfilling Isaiah. We're waiting for that. That's not you. You're a poor dude from the sticks. Come on. There's a big tension there. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of everything in Isaiah. Are you convinced Isaiah is important? I am. I'm pretty pumped about it. We don't have time to go through all of Isaiah today. We're going to be reading it for the next three weeks, on and off, right? So I would encourage you to follow along, uh, listen to the Bible recap, super helpful with those sort of things. But uh, we understand prophets as covenant watchdogs. They're connected to the Lord. They speak the words of the Lord. What are they asking people to do? Let's just unpack this for a minute. If they're covenant watchdogs, then uh, a prophet must be asking people to yeah, obey the covenant, right? Let's obey the covenant. And then to obey the covenant would be to look to the Lord, to repent. Ultimately, we can use a word that's used in all sorts of religious circles. In a sense, they're calling people to worship. That's what they're saying. 
They're saying, hey, if the covenant was to love God, to obey him, to look to him, then stop what you're doing, this worship you're doing, that stinks. Stop that. Look to the covenant who God says he is and worship God. That's what they're calling people to do is to worship. Turn to Isaiah 6. We're going to read all this together. It's going to be great. Let's pray. God, as we begin to read your words, as we think about the prophet Isaiah, whom you, you quoted so often, you've given us so many references. Reading prophetic stuff's tough, God. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would understand. Help us to see Jesus and to look to you in all we do, to worship you. May we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Prophets are calling people to worship. Isaiah is no different. He's having this moment where he's standing before the Lord and he has this big experience about worship. So we're going to read it right now. We're going to read Isaiah 6 and we're going to look at three things. They should be up on the screen there. Three things. As you read this, just ask yourself, what does this say about the Lord? What does this say about us? And what does this say about worship? What does this teach us about worship? What does this say about the Lord? What does this say about us? What does this teach us about worship? Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What does this say about the Lord? Let's read this, man. Now, we're going to talk about adoration later. That's the, the word I, I put here. But uh, the very first sentence I love, catch this, it's so important. King Uzziah is dead. But I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Do you hear it? The king is dead but yet the king is forever enthroned. The king is dead. Nah, but the king is on the throne. Right from the start, he's saying, it doesn't matter who your president is. It doesn't matter where your earthly leaders are at. It doesn't matter what you think authority is, what you think power is. Rome, Babylon, Assyria, America, Japan, it don't matter because the king is on the throne. The Lord is on his throne. Despite your circumstances, the king is on the throne. The king is on the throne. And it says that his robe filled the temple. Just his robe. His robe filled the temple. We had this understanding. We talked about temple, right? And, and how it's this great house. It's where God dwelt. And in this thing that he sees, it's just God's robe that fills the temple. Why? What's the assumption? God is bigger than the temple. God fills things even beyond you. God is bigger than your perceptions. We say all the time, don't put God in a box. And we do that because we love doctrine. We love theology. And we love that two plus two is four. And we're Westerners. And we have to have this scientific method. But hold on. God breaks all that. God's the uncaused cause. God is the thing that explains everything else and the one thing you can't explain. That's why we go to the temple, right? So we said a couple weeks ago. God's robe, just his robe, fills. Boom, so big. And then these crazy creatures that we don't have time to unpack, what do they say? We just sang it. I made you say it. You can say it again. Holy, holy, holy. Do you know why they say it three times? Raise your hand if you know what superlative is. Come on. Come on. Yeah, the, this little girl knows. Ray Ray knows. Who does not know what a superlative is? What is going on with our school systems? Who's a political leader? 
Come on. No, a superlative is like you've got holy, holier, holiest, right? As to superlative, right? The superlative is not existent in Hebrew. They don't have a superlative. And so when they say something twice, they're yelling it. When you see Jesus, like, Jesus, why are you repeating yourself? You just said this because he's screaming in Hebrew. That's what happens. They repeat themselves. Much of you think, well, David both screams and repeats himself a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm a weird combination of Hebrew and American, I guess. But I talk a lot and I scream. But like when they say it three times, they're saying this is the biggest, bestest. It is the estestest thing, the holiest, beyond holy and holier and holiest. It is just the thing. And they're ever declaring it. You read Revelation? They're always declaring, holy, 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 holy. Why? Because he's that big. Because they can eternally not stop singing how holy he is because he is holier than we can imagine. This is a throne room scene, y'all. Isaiah's standing there. He's, he's in this moment. And these creatures, they can't stop saying, holy, holy, holy. He's the holiest. What is holy? Utterly unique set apart. God is so unique and so big and so beautiful and so set apart. We don't even have categories for it. We have a limitation of language and a limitation of knowledge. I'll never get tired saying that up here because you're going to walk away and forget it. I'm going to walk away and forget it. I'm going to believe I've got these things figured out. We don't. God is beyond all the confines we can put in our brains. And so we have all these analogies for him. Read the Psalms. They have analogies like, God, you're a rock. Is God just a rock? God, you're a chicken. You bring things under your ring, you come on, Jim. and is God like, I'm not a chicken. No, God loves that we're, he ordained that we write these psalms, that we write these poetry. He put them in scripture to say, hey, you're trying to relate to me. You're trying to understand that I'm the holiest. In fact, the whole world, what does it say? Is filled with his glory. Do you remember the Hebrew word for glory? We've talked about it a lot. Kabod. Say kabod. What does it mean? Oh, it's heavy. It's weight, right? That's what the original word means. That's heavy, bruh. That's heavy, dude. Right? That's the idea. God is the heaviest. Nothing is as utterly unique. Nothing is as utterly awesome. Nothing is as heavy and powerful. In fact, the whole earth is filled with his heaviness. Have you ever seen a sunset? Have you ever been hunting and the snow starts falling and what used to be kind of green and lush, and all of a sudden now it's just white and you're like, whoa, God is so big. Have you ever seen the ocean for the first time? You're just like, I'm so small. I am so insignificant. Or you start studying planets. You're like, why does Neptune exist? Why is it what in the world? What a ridiculous place. Like God is so holy. His heaviness, his kabod. So much so these creatures never stop singing. They never stop saying. They never stop declaring. This is the experience. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called and the house that was filled with smoke and I said, woe is me. He's not saying, holy, holy, holy. He's not saying, he's not repeating the, the seraphim. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Immediately, when Isaiah is in the throne room before the Lord, the only thing he can handle doing is confession. That's his first response. God, what if, think about this. We're singing songs. What if the Lord showed up? Do you expect the Lord to show up while you're worshiping your times of praying? What if he did? What would you do? What if God showed up right now? I think Isaiah shows us what we'd do. We would stand in front of his incredible, utter uniqueness, his holiness, in front of his glory, his weight, his power. All we could do is confess. And notice, Isaiah doesn't just confess his uncleanliness. 
He sees himself as inextricably connected to his people, to God's people. Covenant watchdog. He sees, oh my gosh, before you, Lord. Even if Isaiah thought, I'm a priest, yo. Like, I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm nailing this thing. Everyone else stinks, but I've really arrived. Before the Lord, who is so holy, even one of the biggest prophets in the Bible, even a priest of the Lord, before them, all they can do is confess, I am unclean. I am a sinner, and I'm surrounded by sinners. In the presence of the Lord's holiness and glory, all we can do is confess. Can, can you relate? Let's be honest. Let me step on some toes. Is that okay? Because I'm gonna. Maybe you don't like church and worship because you don't like admitting that you're not utterly unique and special and superlative. You don't like that all the heaviness isn't on you. Maybe worship isn't authentic to you and it's hard to worship God, that you don't come to church, your family doesn't come to church, people you know, maybe you're watching and you're like, I've gotten away from church. Maybe someone you know who used to sitting here, they're not here. And the issue is that actually they can't worship the Lord because when they get in his presence, they're very uncomfortable with the fact that they're not the holy, 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 that they're not full of the kabod, the glory. That's the issue we see all through the Bible, isn't it? I want to be unique. I want to do my way. I want the glory. I want to be special. How's that working for us? Maybe that's your issue. Maybe you stop with confession. Say, man, I see the adoration of the Lord. I see how holy he is, and, and all I can do is confess. The story doesn't stop there. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Get this. This is super weird. And he touched my mouth. Right? Come on. Take this image in. He touched a burning coal. Have you ever, you ever grilled? You ever, you ever used charcoal grill? You ever take... Right? Come on. This is intense. Takes the coal. And then he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt, your guilt is the word. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin, the ways you've missed the mark, the ways that you intentionally go away from the Lord, it is atoned for. Before Isaiah even specifically asked for forgiveness or to be made clean, he doesn't ask. The Lord has this seraphim come and make him clean. What does that say about the Lord? The Lord isn't waiting for you to stop screwing up, to get better. Tighten your britches and pull up your bootstraps and work harder, you hippie. That's not the message of the Lord. The Lord's desire is to swoop in and to make you clean. That's what this says about the Lord. Any other message is not the gospel and it has to get out of here. Any other message that you live by, any other trumpet that you're trumpeting to or drumbeat you're beating to, it's not the gospel because the gospel says the Lord makes you clean, not you, not anything you're doing. Isaiah, all he does is confess. He doesn't say, and so therefore, Lord, please have mercy on me. I will cut myself and I will, none of that. He just says, woe is me. I'm, I'm broken and my people are broken. You're clean. That's what happens. God responds just like that. What does this mean? Like this is a, man, I struggle, guys, I, I really struggled with this actually. I called Ethan. And I was like, because I was working on this yesterday. I was like, Man, I can't get past this idea because we have this throne room scene and someone's made clean. And you know who's not obviously present in this? Jesus. I mean, come on, be a church person with me. Come on. Like God just made this guy clean without 
Jesus. Now that's confusing, right? And I mean, guys, it was probably a good hour. I wrestled, was like, wait, kept reading it. And then a phrase stood out to me. It just kicked me in the face. So beautiful. I'm going to read it again. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What is the altar? Why does the altar exist? For what? For sacrifices. For animal sacrifices, for, for produce sacrifice, for sacrifices in general. And then why are they burned up? Because that's what the Lord's commanded. And so if the coals are hot, what has happened? A sacrifice. Something has been burned up. From the altar comes the sacrifice. The altar has always been a gift. Not just some rigorous, rigorous ritualistic symbol that means nothing. It was always a gift from God to say, look, I can purify you. What this message tells us is that this sacrifice has already occurred, that the fire, the purification, the judgment, the presence of God, all these things fire symbolizes, all these things the altar symbolizes. God is coming and he's giving that to Isaiah because the sacrifice has already been made. Because Isaiah looks forward to the ultimate sacrifice, whereas we're acknowledging who that ultimate sacrifice was. We've said several times, Jesus is everything. Jesus is the sacrifice. It didn't need to be spelled out here that Jesus was the sacrifice because the rest of the book of Isaiah mentions that. We'll get to that here in a minute. God is the one who does it. Not just the sacrifices or the sacrificer. It's always been about the Lord. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been the plan. God was never like, oh gosh, plan B, better send the son. It's always been Jesus. Jesus has always been everything. Say Jesus is everything. Come on. Jesus is everything. Hmm. And then he used the word, your sin is atoned for. We've talked about this before, but uh, uh, if I go to a restaurant with Nathan, um, Nathan uh, doesn't have any money, so he's going to forget his wallet. And then, I'm just kidding. But then Nathan would say like, hey, oh, I can't pay. I forgot my wallet. And what do I say? I say, well, I got you covered. I got you, bro. That's the Hebrew understanding of atonement. It's to cover up, to cover over, to take care of, to pay for, to atone. And in this verse, it says, your sins are atoned for. First John picks up on this idea. Listen, First John, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4 and 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atonement for our sins. Some of your translations say, propitiation, right? That word comes back in the Greek to the word atonement, the same idea of the altar, the mercy seat. He's the atonement. Why? Why did God atone? Why is this atonement here? Because of love. Because God loves you. Therefore, he sacrificed Jesus for you. Jesus is everything. It's always been about him. Carrying on to verse eight. We're about to read a big chunk here. Get ready. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. We love that. Missionary commissioning services. Y'all heard that. Boy, here am I. Send me. We don't like the rest of the part. We stop there because the rest of the part says, Go and teach a message ain't nobody going to listen to. And no missionary wants to be motivated by that. So we normally stop here, right? There's my cynicism. But anyway, uh, go and sit. Here I am. Send me. And he said, Listen to this. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Jesus quotes that in Mark. 
five, boom. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to preach this stuff that ain't no one going to listen to? I'm going to go prophesy and no one cares. How long am I going to be doing that? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. You want to live there? Yeah, that's a long time. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Here's the money. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled and then God stops talking, and Eli- or Isaiah, or the author, he whispers in, the holy seed is the stump. Say, the seed is the stump. The seed is the stump. That's a big deal. And we're like, what? <laughs> what? Like, come on. Do you, raise your hand if you just immediately like, oh, I get it. Sweet, cool message, God. The seed is the stump. So you're saying Israel's going to be chopped down, stump's going to remain, and then it's going to be torched. But the seed is the stump. Yay! Write that in a worship song. The seed is the stump. Go, God, the seed is the stump. Come on. We don't know what that means. Super weird phrase. Catch this. This gets so good. Right here in verse 8, we have a commissioning. The Lord doesn't just forgive. He doesn't just cleanse. He says, no, I've got something for you to do. Go ye therefore. Baptize all nations. Come on. That's how God works. He says, go. He's going to commission. After forgiving him, he commissions them. But the stump is the seed. Follow me here. We're, guys, we're about to step into the weeds. Okay. But it's going to be beautiful. I need you to do me a favor. Take your finger like this. Push up your Bible nerd glasses. I promise this will be rewarding. Some of you are already like, if you say a Hebrew word, I'm out of here. If you start quoting eight verses to make one point, I'm... bear with me. This blew my mind. Think about how beautiful God is in scripture. The seed is the stump. The Hebrew word for seed is zera. Hey, is it on the screen already? Look at that. Zera. That's a good word. What? Oh, man, those guys, they're on fleek. What did I just say? Uh, gosh. Follow me. Zerah. Go back to Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, Zerah, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Does anyone know the super nerdy, like, theological term for this verse? It's already on the screen. I ruined it for you again. Proto-evangelion. Do you know what that means? Proto-gospel. It's It's the very first gospel. The very first mention of the Messiah. The very first mention of the good news is in Genesis 3.15. Remember when I say everything comes back to Genesis 1 and 3? Here we go, right? It's right there. The proto-evangelon. The snake-crushing Savior. Raw. Wouldn't that be an awesome wrestling name? The snake-crushing Savior. And it says, your Zara, your offspring, your Zara. We'll do it. Carry on, right? Genesis 12. Right now we're at the Abrahamic covenant. Then the Lord appears to Abram and he says, Genesis 12, 7, to your Zara, I will give this land. 
So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. To your offspring, Abraham, to your offspring. Now, remember David when God was talking to him, the Davidic covenant we read earlier? Check it, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 16. We just read this. I'm going to read it again. I will raise up your Zerah, your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The seed is the stump. You don't get it yet. It's okay. Hold on to that. Zerah, 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 right? From the snake crusher from Eve, right? You guys sinned. You messed up. I'm cursing you. But from your offspring will be one that takes over the snake, the one that is crushing you with sin and death. Someone's going to come. And then he says the same thing to Abraham. From your offspring, from your seed, right? Come on, you old-timely people understand the, the double meaning of seed, the double entendre there, right? And then we go to King David. From your seed, David's seed, now catch this. this. This is where it is. Here it comes. Matthew 1. This is a hard image to see, but you just need to see the colors. Okay. Matthew 1 is what? A genealogy, right? So if you see here, you have from Abraham to David. Then you have from David to the deportation, uh, deportation of Babylon, the exile, the exile Babylon. Then you have from the exile Babylon to Jesus, who was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. So from Abraham to David, there were 14. From David to the exile was 14. And from uh, the exile Babylon to Christ, there were 14. 14, 14, 14. Why is 14 significant? You know what numbers make 14? A lot, but let's do this. Let's go four, six, four. Do the math. What does that equal? 14. Some of you, are, you're, you're on board now. You're like, okay, thanks. Back to math. I can follow that. Listen, in the Hebrew alphabet, there's Jewish gematria, and their letters also are numbers. And I don't have time to explain that because it gets really complicated. But do you know what letter four is? It's a D. Do you know what letter six is? It's a V. Do you know what letter four is? It's a D. Do you know if you have a language that doesn't have vowels, it's full of consonants, what word can you make if you fill in some vowels there? David! Do you see? So look, look at this. You have David, David, David. 14, 14, 14. David, David, David. The seed is the stump. Matthew, when he's writing, I know you're like, gosh, I don't, I'm not as excited as you. This is so beautiful how God orchestrated scripture. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus comes, he says, there will be a seed that comes from a stump. Have you ever seen a seed grow out of a stump? It doesn't grow back to a tree, by the way. It grows into something mutilated and annoying and you end up cutting it down. That's why you burn it, by the way. Uh, but there will be a seed that shoots up and it's King Jesus. Jesus is the seed. And Matthew picks up right from the beginning. And he says, 14, 14, 14. David, David, David. Jesus is the seed. That's the hope. The holy seed is the stump. One more time, guys. This is too good. This is too good. Matthew then later in Matthew 2, 23. Isaiah has a connection there. We're going to read it together. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth. This is Joseph. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Which prophet says that Jesus would be a Nazarene? Which prophet says that he'll be from Nazareth? None. There is not a single Old Testament verse that says Jesus will come from Nazareth. <gasps> well, I never. That's frustrating, right? 
Catch this. This is beautiful. Isaiah unpacks this image of the stump. Isaiah 11.1. 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. I'm going to read it again. There shall come a forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, and his roots shall bear fruit. In Hebrew, the word for Nazareth in Greek is Nazareth. Say Nazareth. The word Natser means branch or stick. There shall come forth a branch's roots. The word Nazareth is literally people from the sticks. Is anyone here from the sticks? Yeah, legit. Catch what Matthew's doing here. Matthew's saying, check it out. You know that this Messiah that's supposed to be the root, that's supposed to be the seed that comes up, he's from the sticks. He's literally stick man from the sticks that is your Messiah. Here he is. And Isaiah prophesied it would come. He would be the seed. He would be the branch. He would be the sticks. And that's why Matthew says the prophets. He's not quoting one prophet. He's saying in general, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they all pick up on this image. Now keep reading. Here's where it gets good. Isaiah 53, you know these verses, but we're going to read it. The same word for root, for branch. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look to him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he esteemed him not. Surely... He has borne our, our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed out of our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the seed. Jesus is the root. Jesus is the branch. Israel will be cut down. But God promised to David that your kingdom will last forever. And all the prophets are going to pick up on this, that there is a stump that's been cut down, but there's a branch, a root, a stem that's going to grow. And then Isaiah 53 says that's, that actually, that root, that branch, it's, it's going to be killed for all of us. Again, it's going to be cut down. Jesus is everything. The Bible is one unified story that points to King Jesus. And if the last eight to ten minutes completely bored, you catch this. There are so many connections in your Bible that make it so much more beautiful than just some story that a bunch of old guys with pipes put together and say, mm, let's create a religion. God is in it. And God has connected these things hundreds and thousands of years before we could even imagine. Jesus was always the plan. Jesus was always everything. So what does this say about our worship? As we, uh, we're going to come to a close here. We see adoration, holy, holy, holy. Whole earth is filled with your glory. We see confession. Woe is me. Me and my people, we are all messed up before you, God. We see confession. We see forgiveness, cleansing, holiness being given because of the altar, because of sacrifice. And then we see a commissioning. Think about why we gather. Come back to me now. We're going to be together. We're going to talk together. We're out of the weeds now. We're just talking. What do we do when we come to church? Why have you been here longer than I've been alive? What do we do? We worship. Unpack that. What do we do when we worship? Praise. We, someone's going to come up here. They're going to strap on an instrument and they're going to sing. And then we're going to sing. And then after we sing, what happens? I come up here. We all know the clock. About how long is it? I come up here for about how long? 
Yeah, for a while. Okay, I get you. I, I, I invited myself up for that. That was for you. Softball for you. And then someone comes up here, they clear space, they flap their arms, they yell. That's what happens at church, right? And then what? What happens next after I'm done here? We worshiping and we respond, right? Good job. And then what? Have an offering, we pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we do all this? I want you to catch this constant pattern that we see when Isaiah stands for the Lord. Adoration, confession, forgiveness, commissioning. Guys, this is my Nathan impression. Nathan's really, or actually you gotta get both feet. Nathan's really crafty. Our worship team, they're really sneaky. They're not idiots, they're not ignorant. They know how to stand before the throne room of God. And they lead you there every week because they're not ignorant. Think about the songs we sing. Like, like song, uh, man, uh, uh, we, we say alone in my darkness and dead in my sin. We're having confession, right? And we say, Jesus came in and set me free. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all. Now we're having forgiveness. We're having confession and forgiveness. We have adoration, we're worshiping him. And then we have a commissioning, right? And the song we sang, show me your glory. Go, we're free indeed. Come join the song of all the redeemed. We're commissioning. We don't ignorantly do these things, guys. They're not meaningless. Wait, wait, hold on. We need to cover this. Why do we sing? Why don't we dance? Why don't we paint? Can you imagine coming in here and everyone gives easels, Addie's pumped, right? And we just like, why don't we start painting? Why do we sing? beautiful. We're going to go there. That's, that's the point. But did you know that we're commanded to sing in scripture? All y'all who hate singing, who think you're bad at it, there's over 50 commands in scripture, over direct, 50 direct commands to sing. And there's over 400 references to singing. Even if you're bad at it, it doesn't say all you all who are good at singing. It doesn't say because you're so beautiful and because your voice is so wonderful. No, it just says to sing. And there's a beauty in singing together. Why? Why does it want us to sing? Because music's powerful. And I could bore you with a ton of research right now. I did my master's in some of this about how kids who study music at an early age, they actually do better than kids who don't in most core issues in school, right? Math, science, uh, history, reading, all of it is benefited by kids who study music at an early age. Alzheimer's patients remember jingles from when they were eight years old and they can't remember their kids' names. Why? Because music is powerful. Music does something to your mind. You have a favorite song. It tweaks your emotions. It pulls at you. Nobody says, I hate music. Music, music is stupid. No one says that. Why? Because we know it's powerful, right? In fact, there's a really powerful song. It's one of my favorites. It's about to start playing. Let's take a minute. We'll get it. If we don't, then I'll just start singing it. Raise your hand if you know this song immediately. You get extra points if you yell it out. Yell it out. Come on. Here it comes. It's going to get drunk. Love it. Edge, can you feel it? Oh, you can feel it now. I've climbed. Oh my goodness. What a beautiful song. I still haven't found one for. There is few songs as worshipful as that song to me because it's a declaration of who I was craving my soul to the Lord. And it's an understanding that I believe in the kingdom come when all the colors will bleed as one, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for because one day Jesus is going to make all things right. But right now we don't have it. So I'm still looking. I'm still looking. I love that song. Music is powerful. It makes me cry when I talk about it. You have your song. 
You're like, man, music is so powerful. Why do we sing? Because the Bible tells us to. Because music is powerful. When we gather, we understand that we sing the word. We pray the word. We preach the word. We show the word. That's what we do. This is why we say worship, connect, grow, go. This is what we do. We have adoration, confession, forgiveness, and commissioning. Our worship leaders are theologians. They have to be. We don't come in here and sing junk songs. We don't come in here and sing songs just to make you feel happy and clappy. In fact, sometimes we sing laments because we're commanded to sing. Worship is both vertical and horizontal. Colossians 3.16. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. We worship together. We preach the gospel together. Church, Come in here and sing your heads off. When we sing songs, even if you don't know it, even if you're afraid of looking like an idiot, even if you are the worst person in the room, you're so tone deaf, right? You couldn't kick a tune with a bucket or whatever they say. Sing. Why do we sing? Because I need to hear it. Because we have people in our church that are going through cancer treatments and it's beautiful when they come in here and they sing holy, holy, holy. We have people who are watching from home whose parents are dying and they come in here and they sing holy, holy, holy. We have people in here who are concerned that their baby might not come to full term because it didn't last time. We have people who are concerned that they'll never get pregnant. We have people who come and everything's fine in their life. And we declare the king is on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. The earth is filled with his glory. That's why we sing. We sing as one body. So when you gather, you sing. That's why we sing songs of confession. Because we need Jesus. We need to remind each other. We sing. We do all this adoration, confession, forgiveness, commissioning because of Jesus. He's the one who atoned for us. He's the sacrifice. He's the seed. He's the branch. He rose again. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Amen? In 1 Peter 2.24, he picks up on this Isaiah image. Same image of the branch. He just carries the last part. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. God is holy. God is glorious. Jesus is everything. You aren't. You have no shot outside of Christ. Jesus is the way that you love. Maybe as you respond today, you just need to sing. You just need to sing. As the band comes up and they start playing, you sing. Because you know that when I stand before the Lord, all I can do is look at his holiness and glory, and I respond with adoration. You are holy, holy, holy. You are glorious. Maybe that's all you got. Say, I can't do anything else with that. Maybe you're torn because you realize I'm not the most unique thing. I'm not the most glorious. In fact, I'm not giving my life to the Lord because I still want to hold on to me and I want to be in control and I want to be in power and I can't quite trust the Lord. But then he still says, I want to cleanse you. I want to make you right. I want to have a right relationship with you. So maybe you stop in confession right now. You don't need to stand and sing. You need to sit and open your hands and say, God, these are these things that I'm not handing to you. Woe is me. I am unclean. My people are unclean. I need you. Maybe that's where you stop. Maybe you need to then go the next step and say, he has forgiven you because of Jesus. He bore the sins. He's atoned for you. He is everything. Maybe that's where you stop. You open your hands and say, woe is me, but you have forgiven me. I'm giving you my life and I'm trusting in you. Maybe in that vein, you need to confess of your lack of being baptized or joining the church or whatever God's moving in you. I don't know how God's going to tell you to respond. Or lastly, 
Maybe you need to recognize that we're supposed to go. Go and declare the gospel boldly. To go to preach in all nations. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all he's commanded you. And remember that he's with you always. Maybe you're realizing, now I'm just sitting. Like Nathan talked about. You're just sitting, reading your books, drinking your tea. You're not going nowhere. And God says, go. Get going. Because I'm with you. Jesus is coming back and we've got a mission. There are people who don't know. There are people who need to adore him, to confess to him, to be forgiven. Maybe that's where you stop today. You open your hands and you pray for the lost and you get out there and you go tell them in the name of Jesus because he's everything. You take time and respond. We're gonna pray. Father, as we wrestle through your word and we we get into these deep cuts and, and all this stuff, God, we pray that your spirit would move, that you would speak to us. We cannot have ears to hear. We cannot have minds to understand apart from your spirit, apart from King Jesus. And we open up right now. I pray for the person that needs to give their life to you and hasn't. I pray that your spirit would move in them and they would clearly see your gospel. I pray for for those needing a church home, for, for those who are just distraught, who are broken. God, may we sing and worship you together. May we adore you, confess before you. Accept your forgiveness through King Jesus and go as you commission us, God. May your spirit speak. We trust you to fill in all the gaps, all the things that I've left out that I haven't communicated clearly, God. We trust you. You are the Lord and we are here to worship you. Guide us as we respond. Amen.